Welcome to Humanity's Moment of Choice on Voice America, a series created with global leaders from the Evolutionary Leader Circle. This is your Voice America host, Dr. Kurt Johnson. This is the fifth special program in our series, and it's entitled Humanity's Moment of Choice, Conscious Leadership. And it is brought to you by the Conscious Business Synergy Circle of the Evolutionary Leader Circle. Our co-hosts from the Conscious Business Synergy Circle are Peter Matisse and Mariama Morong. Peter Matisse is a former venture capitalist, software entrepreneur, and founder of the Conscious Business Institute in California. Mariama Morong is a millennial leader and founder of Bend and Stretch, a strategic consultancy in the Netherlands which helps leaders move from ideas to realizing their visions. And they will be interviewing our special guest, Ronaldo Brudico, a global leading futurist, serial entrepreneur, and founder of the World Business Academy, and Paul Pullman, former CEO of Unilever, founder of Imagine, and named a standout leader of the past decade by the Financial Times. He is also the co-author of Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. This series is based on the Evolutionary Leader's award-winning book, Our Moment of Choice, Evolutionary Visions, and Hope for the Future. And it is included in 2022, Humanity's Moment of Choice, Choosing Earth, Humanity's Moment of Choice, Voices for a Thriving Future, Humanity's Moment of Choice, Choosing Peace, and Humanity's Moment of Choice, Choosing to Serve. We've had some 27,000 listeners for these broadcasts, which are now available 24-7 at the same Voice America show page where you have just joined us. Our guest, Ronaldo Brudico, contributed a chapter to the book, Our Moment of Choice, and both Ronaldo Brudico and Paul Pullman have joined us before on The Convergence. For our series, Conscious Business for a Flourishing World in 2019 and 2020, both programs of which are still available on demand in our program archive here at Voice America. Peter, along with Steve Farrell of Humanities Team, was a host as well for those programs, and we invite you to also enjoy those once again in tandem with this broadcast. The Conscious Business Synergy Circle of the Evolutionary Leaders that is bringing you this program is a circle of nearly 100 business leaders who have been part of the Conscious Business Declaration, the programming of the online Conscious Business Summit, and publication of Conscious Business Magazine. You can find out more about these by simply Googling Conscious Business Declaration Conscious Business Summit, and Conscious Business Magazine. So we're so pleased to be hosting along with them once again. You can learn about both the evolutionary leaders and the Conscious Business Synergy Circle at evolutionaryleaders.net and evolutionaryleaders.net slash synergy circles. So all that being said, let's go over right now to our co-hosts, Peter and Mariama interviewing Ronaldo Brudico and Paul Pullman. They'll begin with speaking with Ronaldo Brudico 
then immediately go to speaking with Paul Pullman, and then conclude with a short discussion of their own. So now over to Peter and Mariama. Welcome to the show. This promises to be an hour filled with uplifting, inspiring, and even shocking insights. And thank you, Kurt and the Evolutionary Leader Circle for hosting us as part of your show, or movement, I should say. It's truly inspiring work. So I'm really excited about that. You'll be hearing from Paul Pullman, Ronaldo Brutico, Peter Matis, and myself. My name is Maria Mamarum, and I'm joined by Peter here. Peter is the founder of the Conscious Business Institute that helps leaders of small, medium enterprises and Fortune 500 companies to realize a paradigm shift, one that is needed to prepare organizations for the future and to make the workplace a place where you want to be, not one where you have to be. CBI uses a manageable, scalable, and academically validated system to make that shift happen on a mental, spiritual, and physical level. Peter and I, we just returned from the beautiful Rocky Mountains in Colorado, where we had the CBI Strategy Summit. We had some key decision-making moments and lightning sessions, and I got to interview the four partners, which was a great experience. So we're here, continuing the Future Forward conversation while we incorporate excerpts from the Conscious Business Master Program with two highly esteemed faculty members, Paul Pullman and Ronaldo Brutico. Paul needs no introduction. He helped develop the Sustainable Development Goals and is the former CEO of Unilever and co-author of Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. That in itself says it all. Ronaldo Brutico is a serial entrepreneur, founder and CEO of the World Business Academy. Before that, he was chairman of the executive committee of the Chopra Foundation, the Gorbachev Foundation, and on the board of the Men's Warehouse. So Peter, I know Paul and Ronaldo are both part of the faculty of the Conscious Business Institute. Obviously, they have a lot of insight, wisdom, uh, and experience to share with the people that follow your programs. What was the reasoning behind inviting them specifically uh, to the program and the faculty? First of all, Paul Pullman is probably the most visible leader in the world who has created an organization that operates in a more conscious and sustainable way on a global level. So it's not just an organization of 50, 100 or 200 people, but of 100,000 people. So we need to understand that it is possible and how it is possible to create an organization on that level that operates more consciously and sustainably all throughout the world. And secondly, we invited Renaldo Brutico because um, he's been a long-term friend of mine. And uh, in my life, he has been fundamental in, in really understanding what's happening in the world. And if I would pick one person in the world who knows what's going on and is able to tie these different strands of, of changes that we're facing, whether it's social changes, whether it's the politicians that are operating in certain ways, whether it's business, the finance world, pulls them together and puts them into a strategy for us to understand and what we can create in the world, I would choose Ronaldo. Hmm. And I think that's the beauty as well of these two interviews. Both of them have great vision. Uh, they also have a very clear analysis and comprehension of the current state of the world and what needs to happen. But they bring it back to us on an individual level as to what we can do ourselves to make that change happen and to contribute to make this world a better place. Yeah, so we're bridging heaven and earth of what's Absolutely. the vision out there and how do we make it possible for each individual. Yes, and why should we listen to this today? This series is called um, Our Moment of Choice. 
And as humanity, we're definitely at a, at a moment of choice. There's a lot of suffering that's going on out there in the world. There's a lot of war that's being talked about. There's a lot of dominance. There's a lot of separation that's happening in the world. So a lot of people are feeling the pain. Um, when we speak to the business people, um, everything seems to be okay to the outside. But when we speak a little closer, there's a lot of depression, there's a lot of burnout, there's a lot of abuse of substances that's that's actually happening as a fallout of the last few years, especially with mm -hmm. COVID, with the pressure that we're under. Um, so I want to acknowledge that we are in this situation that's, that's not easy for many. However, um, we have to know that we are in an evolutionary transition in our world, that this is not just a lot of stuff happening in the world, but it's part of a bigger picture, that we are literally moving towards a new age in our world, to the age of consciousness. And Ronaldo will speak about that a little bit. And in the age changes, like it was in the Renaissance or the age of enlightenment, there have been things that were left behind, which were very painful for people. Yeah. And there has been a lot of new things that were brought in, into our world, which is happening right now as well. So I would encourage people to look at this perspective and, and be fully aware of what's coming down the pipe in our world, because we cannot close our eyes to it anymore. We definitely can't. So without further ado, let's go to Ronaldo. And my first question for you is, at this point in your life as a leader, what is super important to you? Our generation has to find the people who are one and two generations underneath us chronologically, because if we don't stand on each other's shoulders, we have to keep reinventing from, from scratch. And that's not a happy thought. And uh, particularly with the stresses society's under now, I don't know if we're going to talk about the role of business and all of that, but if we do, uh, clearly that finding the next generation of people who can not only do business, but teach how to do business in a different way is really the challenge. I am happy to hear that, especially being a millennial myself. But let's talk about climate change first, because this is really pressing us to do business differently. So I've been very involved for in publishing several books and probably over two to three dozen articles now on the subject of climate change. And that led me to uh, studying all forms of renewable energy, literally all forms. And uh, the book I wrote on that subject back in 2007 is actually, has really stood the test of time. It turned out we accurately analyzed what forms of renewable energy were possible, which were probable, which were, had certain latent defects, which ones were really worth pursuing. And when you get through all those, you end up with hydrogen. And we can talk about why, but basically you have to replace the fossil fuel system on the planet. It's not optional. You must do it. And we're not doing it fast enough. Uh, I can predict with a certainty, an absolute certainty, we will not ever, ever achieve the 1.5% raise that we in, in temperature that we had hoped. And I'm a big believer in the uh, in, in, in the, the Paris Accords. Of all the of all the major executives in the world, uh, Paul Pullman, uh, then the CEO of Unilever, was probably the most influential person uh, from the business community that participated. And that I think took people by surprise that business was in favor of altering the economy to make for a greater sustainable outcome. That was a shock to most people, not to me. Well, as we sit here today, we all know that there will be more CO2 tomorrow than there will be today. And there's more yet today than there was yesterday. In other words, not only have we not reversed climate change, we haven't even basically slowed it down right now. The only time it ever slowed was in the recession, and that was only briefly. So we're probably at about 420 parts per million in CO2. 
And that's not even the worst greenhouse gas. The worst one is, is, is by far methane. And if anybody wants to really get scared and you've got a strong stomach and you think you can take any amount of terror, read the Academy's paper uh, on methane called the methane accelerator. It will frighten you. Um, and, and it should, because what it says is we are past the point of no return. And that's a very scary thing, but it's actually true. Now, what does that mean as a practical matter? It means that climate change is far worse than you probably know. It's going to accelerate at an accelerating rate. You're seeing that now, not only in the United States, but around the world. You're going to see enormous pressure brought on every political system in the world. We had over 100 million environmental refugees last year alone. You're going to have at least that number or greater this year, and that's going to escalate each year from here on out. You're seeing massive heat waves in the Midwest. You see forest fires that we, we burned more forests in America uh, than we did in the prior. Like, I think we burned enough forest fires in one year to make up for the prior four or five, if you look at it over a time frame. So all those things that are changing, and most of all, of course, the heating of the oceans, when you look at all those things, including the fact that we are now literally moving, if you can believe it, the jet stream. So the most powerful conveyor system in the world is the way water moves around the planet in our oceans. And when you're looking at ocean currents, you are looking at the way that the circulation system for the planet operates. And you know what happens when you block the circulation in a human heart. It's called a heart attack. And that's what's coming and it's already starting. So what's the outcome? What's the possibility? The trajectory is definitely not positive. Is it really that bleak or are we able to resuscitate? So the, 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 the point of the climate change issue, because I don't want to leave it on a hopeless trajectory. What I want you to know is Mother Nature will correct our behavior. The only question is how much pain we're going to have to go through to get there. So if you have to see the end of human civilization as you know it and as I know it, in order for there to be so fewer of us around and for the total industrial capacity of the world to drop precipitously for a long period of time, more than decades, then you don't want to get to the place where that's how Mother Nature cures the problem. As my good friend Deepak Chopra says, and I think it's a perfect thing to remember, if you want to get proper humility and perspective on humans, think of it this way. If all the insects on the planet died today, within 10 years, the entire planet would be desolate. It would be a giant desert. Conversely, if the, every human on the planet died today, in 10 years, it would turn to begin to look like the Garden of Eden, meaning we have destroyed our own biosphere. Now, can we restore it? Absolutely. Many of my friends, I have impeccable environment, as Peter knows, I got impeccable environmental credentials. I've been doing this for so long. The hydrogen issue is about how do we get out of the mess we created where the biosphere is being destroyed? And the answer is you've got to do it with renewable. You cannot do it except with renewables. And there's nothing powerful enough or ubiquitous enough besides hydrogen. Why hydrogen and not solar and wind? Yeah, well, for simple reasons. Because it, it is solar and wind. It's, it's solar, it's wind, it's geothermal. Uh, it's hydro, and it's also, in some cases, and it's also uh, ocean thermal energy conversion, which most people don't even know it exists, called OTEC, which works off the temperature differentiation and differential in the ocean. It's, it's a thermocline differential technology. So the, the, the point of why hydrogen is because it's the answer to the proverbial question, what do you do when the sun don't shine and the wind don't blow? Let's move on to other subjects that are going on and how they impact us and how these all play together. Economics. So we're going into a global recession. Part of the globe's already there. The U.S. is going to follow. Uh, I don't think it's a weather. I don't think it's an if. It's a how soon. I'm, I've been consistently predicting that it'll be the first half of, of 20, uh, 
23, conceivably the first quarter. Um, it looks like it's going to be a bad one. Uh, and what will make it far worse is that politics are out of control. Some of those geopolitical forces exhibit themselves as things like wars. That would be Ukraine, but that's not the only one. There are a dozen wars going on people aren't paying attention to. So when wars happen, a couple of things happen. Uh, first of all, the economy breaks down, unless you're making ammunition or munitions. Uh, and the second thing that breaks down when you have a war is the flow of commerce between individuals, nations, and, 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 and parts of the globe. So when you see the pressure rising as it is from the social destabilization, brought about in part by climate change, by the way, was that old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times? These are very interesting times. So there are no more, uh, there, this is no longer, life is no longer a spectator sport. We are on the field is my message, whether we want to be or not. So we better play the game. And we have to play it at a far higher level of effectiveness than we've ever played before. Because the pressures from climate change, which are accelerating the economic pressures, which are accelerating the, 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 the bloodshed, both in the US and domestic and out afar, we need to be able to put all of our efforts into this because I do believe within three to five years, we're gonna come out the other side in a positive place. And I'm trying my darndest to see if we could minimize the number of people who get hurt and die in the meantime. And I'm not doing enough, clearly, because I look every day and I get up and I look at the destruction around me in the world and I go, oh my God, we gotta get more people who care. We, we gotta care and we've gotta start acting. It's not enough to say, gee, look what's happening there. Isn't that interesting? Or I wish that wouldn't happen. Everybody's gotta get involved. I, I, the, the famous quote from um, Washington uh, in the uh, Battle of, uh, in Valley Forge was, there is no time for sunshine patriots or summer soldiers. In other words, if you thought it wasn't your job, you're wrong. It is. If you don't attack it yourself with everything you've got, you will fail and we will fail with you. Conversely, and we all know Margaret Mead's favorite line, no one ever doubt what a small group of committed people can do to change the world. That's all it ever has. I told you 35% got us into this. That gives us 65% to work with, but we've got to actuate. We have, and right now we have not been doing that well. But Peter, my punchline is, mm -hmm. if it's that bleak, then there is no option, but for every conscious human being to do what we can to lubricate the transition, to minimize the pain. All right, so the key question for Peter and I then is, what is the role of business? Uh, what can business do to make this happen? Okay, since 1986, <clears throat> when I started the academy, the conclusion I had, which hasn't changed even one word, is that it, the only thing that can save us is business. In other words, um, there was a very famous Greek philosopher named Heraclitus, and he had this statement that uh, no one ever steps twice in the same stream. What he was talking about was the nature of change. So we have always dealt with change for thousands of years. The difference now is that change has accelerated and accelerated. So it's the speed of change that's causing all these problems. How do we deal with it? Well, my suggestion to you is as follows. If you look at all the institutions in society, um, take religion. Religion doesn't change easily. Religion changes very slowly, if at all, and ends up becoming a source of more problems than it is solutions usually. But it's certainly not going to lead at a time when change is the issue. Academe does not change fast. In fact, they're paid not to change. They're paid to accumulate knowledge from the past and project it in a linear regression line forward. When you look at these institutions, the only one that's designed to deal with change is business. So we know in business, no one's going to feel sorry for us if the marketplace talks to us and we ignore it. We literally change or die. 
And that is the number one advantage that business has at this time. And it's the number one most important tool we have to bring to our politics, to our environment, uh, to our decision-making trees, uh, to our international relationships. What's our opportunity and what's how can we make the impact that we we are to make in all of this? So what are you going to do between here and when you leave is the question I've found fascinating. And I, it, I believe personally that um, if you honestly answer every question you ask yourself, it will lead to another question. And if you answer that honestly, it'll lead to another one. And remember, you can never get the right answer if you ask the wrong question. That's a rule of life. So you got to keep asking the right question. You got to be open to hearing whatever the answer is. And in my case, it kept coming back that the question was, after you go deeper and deeper and you see yourself as this tiny, insignificant um, being on this tiny, insignificant planet that's out from a tiny, relatively insignificant star in the middle of a tiny, relatively insignificant galaxy, and you go, hmm, I'm a part of something much bigger than me. If you can hold that, and I'm not sure people like Elon Musk can, by the way, uh, but if you can hold that, then you go, okay, so then what's my role in all of this? You know, not, not how do I get it be my servant? How do I get to, how do I bend it to my will, which is a typical business attitude? How can I serve it? So the question you always get to, I believe, if you keep answering every question is, how do I serve? Now, when you get to that question, that's the last question, because then your life opens up. We have the tools, and those tools are that we know how to run our businesses in our life because we've been trained to deal with change. We must now take those tools and understand it is our job. It is not optional. It is our responsibility to use those tools to change society for the better. So we call that at the Academy, taking responsibility for the whole. Okay, so that's what we got to do. And, there's, and, and, and as I said, there are no spectators. You may think you can sit in the stands and cheer somebody like me or Peter on. You can't. And you may think that other people can cheer you on. They can't. You got, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt who said, there is no substitute for the man who takes to the floor of the grim and the grime of the arena. And we are now in the arena. This is the arena. And it's, a, it's an incredible pressure cooker. And anybody who doesn't know this is going to happen and is happening isn't paying attention. And so the question isn't then what's going to happen. The question is, how can I serve? How can I help the most? And not everybody can do everything. But remember, don't ever let the fact you can't do everything stop you from doing something. Any step, no matter how small, is a great contribution. But what you're really talking about here is a mentality shift, and that takes time. It's not born overnight. Here's what I want to get back to. Homo sapiens, sapiens, which is what all of us were born into, is dying out. You're watching it. This is the death rose. In the Hindu world, they call this the Kali Yuga. Okay? And it's, it's happening. So it's not like you can say, gee, I wish it wouldn't happen. It's happening. You're not going to stop it. What you have to do is What's your role in it? How can you serve in the midst of it? Okay. And what you're going to find is that there have been 33 or 32 separate evolutions of the human species. Notice you do not see any Neanderthals running around. You don't see Cro-Magnons running around. You don't see Homo erectus running around. Okay. They're all dead. They're gone. Every single one of those evolutions died. So what do you see running around? You see Homo sapiens sapiens. So what is that? Well, Homo sapiens is the man or woman who knows. That's what we were up until about mm, 80,000 years ago. Okay, Homo sapiens sapiens, which emerged from Pinnacle Point in South Africa about 40,000 years ago. That's what we are, we were. Uh, that's the man or woman who knows that they know. That's called reflective consciousness. That also is dying. So Homo sapiens sapiens, everybody you think of as a human being today 
is going to expire. They're, they're not going to be around in the next evolutionary phase. What's going to be around is what Barbara and I call Homo uh, Universalis. So Homo Universalis is the man or woman who knows, that's sapiens. They know that they know, that's sapiens, sapiens. And what they know is that we are one. That's called universal consciousness. See, if you think you're not part of the whole, you got a big problem because your, your species is going to die. If you know you are part of the whole, you're part of the whole of humanity, you're part of the whole, which is called the biosphere, you're, heart, you're part of the whole, which is our collective consciousness. If you know that, then you're homo universalis and you're the species that's going to emerge, however ugly it gets between now and then. Okay, number one thing that I think where America went off the rails, probably around 1970, um, was we became addicted to a new religion, and the religion was called materialism. How did we get so comfortable chasing basically what we thought was here material plane of reality? How, how did we get so comfortable that we lost our soul? You know, there's an old biblical quote: "What benefit a, a man if he gained the entire if if he gained the entire world and he loses his immortal soul?" And, and I think that's the question. So, and, and there was nothing in the New Testament. I, there's another line I love, which is, "Why would you store up your riches where the moth invades?" and rust consumes, meaning carpets were wealth in those days, and so was metallic objects. So why would you store it up in things of this world? Wouldn't you be better off remaining centered to what you were in consciousness? So the academy was formed to shift the consciousness of existing business leadership from that of a predator to that of a steward, because you act differently if you think you're responsible. You have to shift the consciousness of young people going into business, and particularly our business schools, so they see themselves entering a noble profession rather than the jungle, because you give yourself permission to do things in the jungle you will not do in the temple. The third thing is shift the consciousness of the public at large so it puts its money where its deeper values are, because then you know business will follow. So that, those are all consciousness shifts. And I would urge you to believe, because it's true, the only shift in consciousness you have to be most worried about is your own, and then watch what happens all around you. Okay. So I, I just would urge you, the way do you get um, you get the spirit and ethics and philosophy back into business is start with the person that's most important in your life, you. Uh, we have a saying in the academy, uh, the only person you can, the only thing you ever can really change is yourself, but it's amazing what changes around you when you do. And it's also amazing how you start to make different choices. It's not always easy. I'm not saying it is, but it's, it's stunning to me uh, how it works. And there are certain basic laws of the universe. And one of them is what goes around comes around. And another one is don't worry about how you'll get taken care of. If you're taking care of you, the universe is taking care of you too. If you're not, you are actually in a struggle. And that struggle represents itself in your personal life, in your business life, and in your, um, probably in your, uh, your career and your relationships, et cetera. I think that many people can relate to the struggle you speak about, that some things in our life simply don't want to flow. You've been around the block and have a lot of experience working with political and corporate leaders from all around the world, even with creating systemic change in our world. As we conclude, what's one message you want to leave our listeners with? What do you encourage people to do, whether they're a manager in a global organization or working in a startup? My goal is to challenge us and to tell us that it's time to get off the bench. And um, there are guys like me who've been doing this for a long time, but there's not enough guys like me. And there's not enough women like Hazel Henderson, who my dear friend who just passed away. 
So it's not enough just to warn people. I've been doing that my whole life. I call it the Paul Revere speech. So this is a Paul Revere speech. You know, get ready. It's coming. You want to be ready when the British get here. But there's something else that goes on with the Paul Revere speech. He was trying to tell you to get ready, not so you could flee. He was telling you to get ready because there was going to be a confrontation. Now, that confrontation doesn't have to always come with bullets. It does when societies get particularly crazy. So that's where we are now. The bullets are flying in every direction. They're going to keep flying and they're going to get worse. But we could, we could shift this. But we have to go back to something more basic. So every time I teach at a really good business school like Stanford, almost always you get asked, what's the number one thing you can do to be a success in business? Number one, what's the number one thing? And I always give the same answer. Start meditating. Start to learn how to access your inner resources. Start to get conscious in a word. Because from that place, whatever happens around you, you are going to be so much better prepared to address, to address it, to deal with it. And, and meditate is just the word, don't get hung up on the word. It, it just could be uh, what John Kabat-Zinn would talk about. It's just inner awareness. It's, 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 it's knowing, it's taking a moment to st- stop and check in with yourself and, and, and try to be more clear who the doer is that's doing the doing. And when you do that, it turns out you start to discover you have all kinds of tools at your disposal you never would have guessed. And if you get hooked on, well, am I going to make enough money if I do that? Or if you get hooked on like, gee, that could cost me some money or gee, that could cost me a career move or what? Eh, eh, sorry, too late. You've already been had. You got you to change religions. And, and, and I'm not a person who subscribes to any given religion. Uh, when I mean that in the metaphorical sense, you have to change your spiritual bearing, your, your spiritual awareness. And that starts with however you see yourself inside. And from that place of checking in, uh, I believe you will, the, the answers will start to manifest for themselves. And hopefully, this is my goal for today, provide leadership to the others who have not yet gotten to that place and are still blinded by maya, as the, as the Hindus would say, by, by the miasma of the material world that keeps them from seeing what's there. Thank you, Ronaldo. I'm excited to speak with Paul Pullman today. Paul is one of the most visible changemakers in the global business world. During his tenure as a CEO of the consumer goods giant Unilever from 2009 to 2019, he turned the organization from challenging times into one of the most purpose-driven, inspiring, and also financially successful companies in their industry. If we seek to transform the way we work and conduct business, Paul's courageous leadership at Unilever provides not only the steps to do it in a large global organization, it also proves that building a more purpose-driven, inspiring organization translates into better performance. Paul has been instrumental in developing the Sustainable Development Goals and is now running Imagine, which inspires leaders to create systemic change in the world. Paul, thank you for taking the time. Let's dive right in. When we spoke last, you mentioned that you considered becoming a priest when you were young. Can you share with us how your upbringing has influenced the contributions you make in the world today? You know, my life has been lucky. I, I won the lottery ticket of life by, born, by being born in the Netherlands. I was born in 1956, about 10 years after World War II. We had six children at home and my parents had met in Boy Scouts. 
so that was very important to them to be in the outdoors and respecting nature. But more importantly, they wanted their communities to function again. They wanted peace in Europe. Uh, they wanted to be sure that their kids got a better chance and start in life than, than they had gotten. And uh, education for them was tremendously important. I was lucky we had a toilet at home, so I didn't have to deal with the issues of open defecation like one and a half billion people. I was lucky to have a piece of bar soap at home. So I didn't die before the age of five, like four million other children. I was lucky to have free education. Um, that's why I'm able to talk to you today. But what did I do for it? Nothing. I just won the lottery ticket of life by, by the luck of being born in the Netherlands. So I always felt that if you're in that position, which is really the minority of people in this world still, the, the, the 5%, may I call it, it's your obligation, it's your duty to put yourself to the service of the other 95%. That's a very powerful call to action for today's leaders, Paul. I'm curious about how you were able to turn an entire organization towards purpose, though. As the former CEO of Unilever, you've demonstrated to the world how to transform not just a few people, but a global organizational system. What was the magic that made it possible to change an entire system versus only a few people at the time? No, that is true. And one of the things that was appealing me to go to Unilever was the size and scale of that company. I've never, uh, obviously, I had a job to do coming in from the outside to make the company again successful. It hadn't done very well in the preceding decade. The financial crisis obviously had put added pressure on the system. But for the first time, they decided to put someone in there from the outside uh, exactly to turn the business around mm -hmm. uh, in an environment that wasn't easy. I knew that coming in from the outside from Nestle at that time for me, that uh, it was not me that would demand their respect because of my position I was holding, but that I had to earn the respect from the people that were in the company. So I started to understand the core and went back to the basics of how Lord Lever had started its company in the end of the 19th century, where he talked already about the concept of shared prosperity, where he built the housing for his workers, etc. Well before the factories were fully up and running, he had just a different philosophy of doing business. Unlike his contemporaries, like let's say the Rockefellers or the Carnegie's or the Mellons at that time, which had made incredible amounts of money often by monopolistic practices, and only then became philanthropists. Lord Lever actually continuously gave his money away, often before he had it. And so he had a different philosophy. So it seems that some of the pillars on which you based your leadership at Unilever, a focus on sustainability and purpose, for example, were already present in Unilever's DNA. Can you speak to the importance of leaders being clear about their own values and their own purpose? and also what it takes to spread those across an entire organization? Now, it was very clear to me that you couldn't have a, a sustainable company if you're not sustainable yourself, nor can you have a purpose-driven company if you're not purposeful yourself. I had gotten to know Bill George where, here in Geneva in Switzerland, where Medtronic has a factory. I visited him once when I was working here to look at product quality, they were making pacemakers. But actually he had invited a woman to come over at lunch, which he did every month, that was sharing experiences of having a pacemaker. And she came into the canteen and talked about how it changed her life, how she could see her children again and grandchildren, and under any normal circumstances would have passed on. And it brought purpose to life to me. And it was really a enormous um, 
uh, satisfaction to see that. It wasn't about product quality. It, product quality was just a way to ensure that these purposes could be lived. So I said to Bill, you need to help me. I can only do this with our top 500 leaders if you are part of it. So we created this Unilever Leadership Development Program, which now has taken nearly 100,000 people through it. And really it's a, a high scoring learning uh, module, not different from what you are doing probably. Uh, uh, put back in, in the time that we were developing it. And uh, out of that came our own purpose and that made our collective purpose stronger. That was probably the most important thing because from that collective purpose that we developed came a sort of a common bond and a code, what you call this organizational cohesion in your quadrants. Then the first thing I did was abolish guidance, stop quarterly reporting, stop giving guidance. And it was really to give a signal that we were moving to the longer term. If you want to address these issues of that are embedded in your purpose of climate change or inequality or food security, in our case, making sustainable living commonplace, you can't do that in the rat race of quarterly profits. So by making clear that we were running our business differently for the multiple stakeholders, the longer term, we gave people a flexibility, uh, a space to behave differently. And I think that was very important. You're speaking about a space that many people don't enjoy in today's hectic world, which makes me wonder whether the current leadership structures for tomorrow's world are functioning. Many of today's organizations are run in a top-down manner, with leadership centralized at the top. At the Conscious Business Institute, we believe that in order to build an inspiring organization, everyone in the company needs to carry the vision and the purpose of the company. What was your experience at Unilever? And if you agree, how did you get everyone in the company to step up? Yeah, it. so it must be carried by everybody because ultimately where the work happens is on the ground in the countries. They all have different environments and different circumstances. What we found was even now today, over 50% of the workforce in Unilever actually is already millennial or Gen Z. That's how fast it goes. They're actually more purpose driven than we were. And often we got um, uh, the push from them to go even faster or more aggressively than, than we would go. Uh, we were very fortunate that when we put that vision out there, that more purpose-driven model, we also became the preferred employer in most markets. We became the third most looked up company on LinkedIn after Google and Apple. So we could recruit out of a pool of about 2 million people a year. And people were coming to the company because of that broader mission. So we got, we got really, uh, a talent influx that already believed in it, if I want to. Now, that's compelling, especially for the war of talent that companies are speaking about. Let's talk about the balance between purpose and performance. When we work with companies, most still focus primarily on performance, often to meet the demands of the financial markets. Even if they develop a purpose, it oftentimes gets pushed to the back burner in the day-to-day -day heat of the business. How is it possible for business leaders to place a focus on purpose and at the same time maintain a high-performing organization? Did you tie your purpose to the performance appraisals, for example? 100% in your performance system. What, what is often missed in, in this whole ESG or environmental story, Peter, is that it needs to have a, a very much of a performance edge. Otherwise, uh, the music stops very soon, as we've seen in some of the companies, and then the damage is even bigger. I would argue that in Unilever under my tenure, because people were so purpose-driven, actually with nearly a mission of saving lives, knowing that, you know, reaching a, a billion 
consumers with hand washing would save the lives of four or five million children every year. So we were so mission driven that that actually put an enormous pressure on performance. I would simply tell people that if we would fail with our multi stakeholder longer term experiment, and in those days, it was more an experiment than now, then we actually would do more damage to this world than anything else. So the pressure on performance, which obviously many people were asking for was actually much higher than in any other company I was familiar with. Paul, you're delivering an important message that a focus on purpose actually drives performance. But at Unilever, you had the support of Lord Lever and others who supported your mission and ideas. I wonder what can business leaders do to drive towards a more healthy business when they don't have the support from their investors or their board? And in relation to that, how do our systems need to change to support building healthier organizations? Well, it is. Uh, it starts with each and every one of us. And, you know, if uh, I think at the end of the day, we called it in Unilever small actions, big difference. Uh, obviously, in the broader systems changes that are needed is, uh, if I may say, we need to move the financial markets to the longer term. Uh, that goes by itself. Many of the CEOs or boards actually uh, are part of this short termism that has crept into society that isn't healthy. The second thing we need to do is what we referred to before is create a different type of leadership. The MBA programs or the business school programs across the world are really creating little Milton Friedman's on steroids at a time that we can afford them the least. You know, uh, Judy Samuelson, who runs the uh, Aspen Institute, not far from some of you, uh, was telling me that they'd done a study with people going to business school and uh, interviewing them or they wanted to change the world and they wanted to make a real difference. Then they interviewed the same people after they left business school. I want to work for Goldman Sachs and I want to make a lot of money. So we, we turn wonderful human beings into little monsters that doesn't work. So we need to create leaders, also leaders that have sticking power. The average tenure of a CEO now is less than four and a half years of a Fortune 500 company. So clearly we have a leadership deficit. The third thing that we need to do is uh, uh, the famous treasure what we measure, you know, our GDP system, our corporate profit system is a very narrowly defined definition of success. In fact, increasingly, it's the definition of failure. If you now look at the uh, shortcomings that are showing up in, in the planetary boundaries, uh, about six of the nine that Johan Rockstrom talks about are either already passed or, or close to being passed. So we're in very dear situations there. So we need to move to a system that rewards not only financial capital, but also social, human, environmental capital. Thanks for those pointers. I'd like to speak a little bit about the book you recently published, titled Net Positive. Can you speak a bit about why you published it and what the main messages of the book are? Yeah, I have to be honest, Peter, I never wanted to write a book. I'm not a consultant or an academic. And, uh, you know, I don't uh, don't don't want to talk them down there. But what I've seen with business people when they write books as CEOs, it's either to stroke their ego or to rewrite history. And that was never appealing to me. But then Adi Ignatius from Harvard Press kept hammering on me and said, you need to share the story so that more people can actually benefit from that because you can't just reach them all by yourself. And then I got this idea, not in my mind of writing a book, but actually creating a movement because I have always struggled with the way we define success. And that's really what we have to reframe. Let me be very brief here. Last year, World Overshoot Day was July 29th, which is the day that we use up more resources than the world can replenish. I would argue that 
after that date we're actually stealing from future generations day after day. This wonderful planet is 4.6 billion years old. If I, I would put it at a scale of 46 years, human beings have only been here for four hours. The industrial revolution started one minute ago. And in that one minute, we've lost 50% of the world's forests. So we have discovered that we're living well beyond the planetary boundaries, that we can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. And anything you can do forever is by definition unsustainable. And, it's, and science actually supports that left, right and center. Now, most companies, if not all companies, are still in the CSR mode of what you you call corporate social responsibility, a little bit less plastics in the ocean, a little bit less carbon emission, a little bit less deforestation. I used to kill 10 people, I was a murderer. I now only kill five people. Am I a better murderer? It just doesn't work anymore. Less bad is still bad. People say, Paul, I get it. I'll be, I want to be sustainable, no harm, net zero, all these commitments coming up. But you know, sustainable or to sustain is to maintain but maintain what maintain a system that isn't working for us or at least not working for the billions of people that suffer each time more and more for our shortcomings is not working anymore so the only way to think to be honest is regenerative restorative reparative and that is what we call net positive we ask ourselves two simple questions how can companies profit from solving the world's problems, not creating the world's problems. And is the world actually better off because your company is in it, yes or no? And frankly, I'm not so sure how many companies can answer that in the affirmative. So for us, a net positive company is one that takes responsibility of its total handprint in society, not just its footprint. It, it understands that it if it outsources its supply chain, it understands that it cannot outsource its responsibilities. It's a company that works on the longer term for the multiple stakeholders, optimizing, not maximizing, optimizing the returns for all of them. A company that understands that the shareholder results or profits is indeed a result of what you do, not a myoptic objective. And last but not least, most importantly, these companies are willing to be part of this broader transformation that we need in society. Optimizing within a system that is designed not to deliver, frankly, is, is outright uh, lunacy. So we do need to have these companies step up and fill what I called before this political void. Those are some strong points you're making, Paul, especially about the political void. There's one question that we oftentimes get asked, which I'd like to get your thoughts on. We often find that the middle management which essentially runs the day-to-day -day business in an organization, is often stuck between a rock and a hard place. They get pressure from the top to perform, and their teams expect them to be authentic, purpose-driven, inspiring, and human-centric. How can those in the middle management position influence and maybe even help the transformation of an entire organization? So first of all, what we see is that increasingly with the great resignation in the US, but also in other countries, that if companies don't drive these uh, more purpose-driven models, people are getting disengaged. You know, they will actually walk out now or they will actually resign. That's at the roots of the great resignation. So bringing some attention to that is important. We run surveys with companies that surprise CEOs always. We do it privately with the CEOs. But the perception CEOs have behind the commitments they make versus the perception the employees have. And the biggest issue in most companies actually is not anymore, oh, we need to do this or that. Every company makes a statement on climate change, more or less, few exceptions, but we're broadly there. But it's between the say-do gap. 
It's how many people say I'll never put money in politics anymore after the January event, or I don't support um, uh, politicians who still don't recognize the elections, but a year later they're financing it again. Or making broad statements on getting the carbon emissions down, but then letting their trade associations loose on killing any piece of legislation that goes in that direction. So it's the say-do gap. Leadership is defined by what you do in the dark that shines in the light. And that's really where most of the people struggle. And it's difficult if you're in middle management to deal with that. The second thing, which is where middle management comes in, if I think out loud, we are at the point now, regretfully, but, but helpfully, that the cost of not acting is actually higher than the cost of acting. If you look at COVID, we've spent $17 trillion in Europe and the US alone to save lives and livelihoods. We've lost about $25 trillion this decade in global GDP. We've started to discover that the cost of not acting is significantly higher than the cost of acting. And that's true for our broken um, food system, where we have negative externalities of $12 trillion that we could put into a positive of $4 trillion. That's true for the amount of money that we spend in the world, 10 to 12% of global GDP on conflict prevention and wars. That's true on the price we pay for holding women back in most of the world. There are only six places in the world where women have the same rights as men. So it's true for all of these 17 sustainable development goals. Now, because the cost of inaction is higher now, becoming higher than the cost of action, I think that is one of the reasons why you see the financial market waking up. The financial market moving rapidly, not only seeing ESG as a risk mitigation, but increasingly more so as actually an enormous economic opportunity. 81% of the ESG funds last year outperformed the non-ESG funds. The uh, Glasgow Financial Alliance on Net Zero, which was launched at the COP26, has $130 trillion of money under management, half the world's money, more or less, making commitments to decarbonize their portfolios in line with the Paris Agreement. So if you're in middle management, there's a long-winded way perhaps to say, if you're in middle management, you're in an ideal position to point out to a CEO who's only interested in the shareholders and making money that you have found a better way now to make money that a more sustainable, more equitable way is actually also a more profitable way. The interest of the longer term shareholders, longer term shareholders and the multiple stakeholders are increasingly converging. That's why we say in our book, Milton Friedman is dead. So bringing that knowledge to the CEOs or to senior management, understanding their challenges and responding to that with a better approach is probably still the best way of doing that. And you're in an ideal position because most of the decisions in the companies are actually made by middle management and most of it doesn't even go up to senior management. So get going. If you see management not responding, if you see them behaving deliberately dysfunctionally, uh, which is the case for some companies, hopefully not an, not that many anymore, but then it's time to look for another place to work. and. That's a good thing. It's a good thing because then these companies either shape up or shape out. Natural selection driven by the courage of each employee making different choices. I like that. You've touched on many symptoms in our world that show how dysfunctional our current ways to work and live are. Climate challenges to infant deaths. If these are the symptoms we see, what are the deeper issues? Maybe our consciousness or mindsets that are contributing to the current state of the world. I agree completely with you that although we talk climate change or inequality or food security or deforestation, and in essence, these are symptoms of a bigger crisis 
that we have, which is a leadership crisis and helping to address that with programs like this and changing your mindsets, uh, redefining what good looks like is exactly what we need to do to create these uh, better leaders. I've often said that in essence, this is a crisis of greed, of apathy, of selfishness that we are facing. It's a good message to all leaders across the world. Let's now speak about your new company, Imagine for a moment. After Unilever, you moved from being a corporate executive to founding a social enterprise, an organization that supports leaders in driving systems change in the world. What was your motivation to found Imagine? So I've moved actually from a formal or board authority in my previous jobs to a moral authority, what I do now. I don't have a big organization. I don't have uh, tons of money to spend like I had in Unilever. But the impact that I can have or the influence to drive the broader systems changes now is much bigger. That's why after 10 years, I thought I need to do something that is more impactful because I don't know how long I'm going to be around in this world. And that's true for all of us. Our scarcest uh, currency that we have is time. And a lot of people will try to define for you how you have to use it, but it's up to you to decide how to carefully spend your time to have the biggest impact. And that includes for the companies you're working for or what you do in your private lives. Maybe an opportunity for all of us to reflect. Let's put that into a bigger context of the, where the world is headed. Ray Dalio, the well-known hedge fund manager, has spent millions to research how big system breakdowns happen in our world. From the breakdown of the Roman Empire to the Spanish, Dutch, and eventually the British Empire. They all follow a specific pattern he found which we are now seeing in the world again. If we don't want to repeat history, what do we need to do differently, in your opinion? Well, perhaps we need to um, repeat history. I actually, sometimes there's a little bit of a downforce in me as well, when there's another bad news coming that we didn't expect, and it seems to be all piled up. But you know, until now, we just applied bandages. When the financial crisis was there, we didn't really address the issues of climate change and inequality. We just propped up the banks and created more billionaires. People genuinely felt, and they had a reason to feel, that banks were too big to fail and people were too small to matter. Less than 5% of all the spending then went to right-sizing our global economy. Now with COVID, it's slightly different. People have woken up, we've had a pause, we have a higher level of consciousness. I think people have realized that you can't have healthy people in an unhealthy planet. And partly aided by the European Green Deal, but also in other countries, uh, we are now seeing an acceleration actually to the move to a more sustainable and equitable environment. Before COVID, 20% of the countries had made commitments in line with Paris. After COVID, at the COP26, it was 65% of countries, 95% of the global emission making these commitments. We've seen a fundamental change Uh, happening in a positive sense. Still not at the speed and scale needed. We're still projecting to 3.1, 3.2 degrees warming, but a significantly bending of the curve. So the fact that more and more things are broken now uh, helps us. Uh, for example, the war in the Ukraine is now, of, of course, it's giving a short-term pressure. None of these transitions are easy and they are bumpy. You cannot climb a smooth mountain, but it makes Europe now realize that they have been complacent, that they need to accelerate 
the energy transition, not only for security reasons, but more importantly, for saving the future of the planet Earth. So I think to some extent, sad as it may be, because millions and millions of innocent people are suffering because of our failures, it is actually to some extent, at least I tell myself, good that so many things are broken so that we can finally build it back in at least a little bit better shape than we've done in the past. Thank you, Paul Pullman. This concludes both interviews. Um, I feel very energized, very inspired, almost as if I'm activated. Um, I'm sure we all need time to process all of these insights. So Peter, maybe you can give us your key takeaways from these very interesting and future forward leaders. The first thing I would like people to take away is that our world is changing and not to hide underneath a blanket or to pull the blinds because it will be changing whether we do that or not. The second thing is to consider that this is an opportunity and not something where we say, holy cow, how can I protect myself? Um, the third thing maybe is to, to see how do we choose to respond? This is our moment of choice. How do we choose to respond to these changes in the world? Can we build communities where we belong, where we say, I can be myself here, I can be supported? So reach out to people, try to become part of a community or several communities that nurture your soul, but also are able to support you when things get a little dicey <laughs> down the road. Yeah. And maybe lastly, in terms of that, to explore that, to speak out loudly. Nobody's um, helped if we if we be, become cautious with our words, we need to speak out, um, not in a judgmental way, in a compassionate way, maybe, but in a truthful way and say, how can our organization change? What do we need to do as an organization? If you're an employee, for example, speak to your leaders, as Paul suggests, go out and meditate, become self-reflective, because ultimately, and I fully support Renaldo and what he says is ultimately our success in life, whether we thrive or not, depends our level of consciousness. So expand your consciousness, meditate, take programs, connect to people that help you do that. Mm, yes. And what I find so interesting, and I think I heard both uh, Renaldo and Paul, and you actually just mentioned it again now. Uh, you talk a lot about communities and coming together as a collective. And I really see that as a consequence of the awareness and the understanding that you develop through meditation, actually, um, that you're part of something bigger, that you're interconnected. And then you have a change of perspective where it's not you against the world, but it's us as a collective with the world. Our world is changing from an egocentric to an ecocentric perspective. So it's not about the me, me, me anymore. That's one of the big changes that is happening. It's not about my survival. It's really about us. How can we move closer together as humanity? And a culture does exactly that. It binds people together around a, a certain mission. How do we want to work with each other? How do we want to be with each other? How do we want to respect each other? How do we want to care with each other and still get things done? So culture becomes fundamental for organization to thrive in the future. So there will be a distinction going forward where people say, how can we truly collaborate with each other? Which means acknowledging and receiving the person for who they are. And then from that point of view, get together and really create something wonderful together. That's great, because that's also ties in with what Ronaldo said. How may I serve? How can I contribute? And then the next level of that would be, how can we as a collective collaborate and serve? And then Beautiful. That's when magic happens. Yes. That's when magic <laughs> happens. Exactly. Yes.
So if you feel you want to go deeper, if you want to have a practice for yourself to create conscious businesses or to advise people on becoming more conscious in, in their organizations, and if you want to learn from those faculty members, I encourage you to go on our website and, and check out the Conscious Business Master Program. That concludes our beautiful session. Thank you for tuning in. If you want to learn more about the Conscious Business Institute, go to their website, consciousbusinessinstitute.com. Connect with Peter and I through LinkedIn. And if you want to know more about my work, please visit bendandstretch.co. See you on the other side. Well, thanks so much to Peter Matisse, Mariama Marong, Ronaldo Brudico, and Paul Pullman for that truly inspiring and informative sharing. And a huge thank you to the Conscious Business Synergy Circle of the Evolutionary Leaders and for the Conscious Business Institute for bringing this program to us. There's absolutely no doubt that conscious business and conscious leadership are at the forefront of our world's possibilities for meaningful change. So we're so happy to be a part of it. And as we've said, you can find out more about both the evolutionary leaders and the conscious business synergy circle at evolutionaryleaders.net and evolutionaryleaders.net slash synergy circles. And more about the programs Peter and Mariama have highlighted in this Voice America special at consciousbusinessinstitute.com. That's consciousbusinessinstitute.com. It's been such a privilege to host this program here on the Convergence on Voice America in this series, Humanity's Moment of Choice. So before we wrap up and tell you what's next on the Convergence, let's remind ourselves about the Evolutionary Leaders multi-award-winning book, Our Moment of Choice, evolutionary visions, and hope for the future. Here about that is a short message from the publisher, Beyond Words, Simon and Schuster. Hello, this is Richard Cohn, publisher of Beyond Words. We are very honored to be partnering with Simon & Schuster and the Synergy Foundation to bring you a new thought-provoking book for these challenging times. It is called Our Moment of Choice, and it features 43 of the world's most well-known spiritual thinkers, offering practical solutions to the most pressing problems of our time, from economic inequality and social injustice to climate change and spiritual disconnection. Deepak Chopra offers his thoughts on how our inherent wholeness is not a choice, while Greg Braden suggests that we can change our world by first realizing that none of us are separate from each other. Lynn McTaggart investigates the link between altruism and self-healing. Michael Bernard Beckwith, Bruce Lipton, and many others share their thoughts on moving forward in ways that expand our consciousness and benefit the global community. Our moment of choice calls on us all to be the co-creators of a just, unified, peaceful, and thriving world. The time has come 
for all humanity to be united in purpose. This is our call to action. This is our collective moment of choice upon which our future depends. You can purchase your copy today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Beyond Words, or your local independent bookstore. Welcome back to The Convergence. As we wrap up this program on conscious leadership, our next program, posting on about November 18th, will be on a topic that our guests today have also foreshadowed, the relationship of science and spirituality. That program will be entitled Humanity's Moment of Choice, Joining Science and Spirit, and it is brought to us by the Science and Spirituality Synergy Circle of the Evolutionary Leaders and will feature the authors and their special guests of two very successful books, Science, Being, and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists by neuroscientist Dr. Paul J. Mills, and The New Story of Wholeness, An Experiential Guide for Connecting the Human Family by two-time Nautilus Award winner Dr. Robert Atkinson. Both are new books from the Light on Light Press, which is one of the hosts of the Convergence series here on Voice America. So you can learn more about this at lightonlight.us and sacredstories.com. That's lightonlight.us and sacredstories.com. In December, two more evolutionary leader synergy circles will bring us programs as well. The Unitive Narrative Synergy Circle and the Contact Synergy Circle. These are going to be fascinating programs by major experts on the cutting edges of the cosmology of our universe and the intriguing subjects of unidentified aerial phenomenon and other related occurrences that have certainly come to the forefront of our global news media in the last few years. So watch for those in November and December here at The Convergence. So wrapping up, thanks so much again for this amazing and important program today on conscious business and conscious leadership. Tell your friends and colleagues about it. It is such a pivotal issue in these challenging times. So thank you again for joining us and best wishes and love from all of us. <music> 